You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There is so much, so much to talk about. So much can happen in a week. Matt Gates, one of the House Republicans who voted to set aside the results of the 2020 election, the member from Florida's first congressional district. He's as much of an insurrectionist as the people who broke down the doors of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and smeared shit on the walls and beat a cop to death. The New York Times reported last week that the almost 40-year-old Gates is under investigation, an investigation that started during the Trump administration. Gates is under investigation for allegedly fucking a 17-year-old girl and then transporting that girl across state lines to fuck her some more. Other stories have come out since this one broke. There are other girls, it seems, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. And Gates may or may not have shown members of Congress on the floor of the House nude photos and explicit videos of other women he's fucked without the consent of the women in those photos and videos, which all by itself is a crime in Washington, D.C. We've been hearing from QAnon lunatics for the last four years that there is a secret cabal of powerful elected officials, all of them Democrats, who are fucking children. And the popular definition of children these days is anyone under 25, so this 17-year-old girl definitely counts. And it turns out that there might be a secret cabal of powerful elected officials fucking children, but it's not Hillary Clinton or Tom Hanks or Oprah. It's Matt Gates and Roy Moore and George Nader, Google him. And then there's Trump himself. One of the many women who accused Trump of sexually assaulting them was 13 years old at the time she alleges the former president and forever a piece of shit assaulted her. Hey, QAnon, the pedophiles are coming from inside the building. Your wing of it, the right wing. Stop projecting. Or I could open the show by reminding you all to reset your how many days has it been since the last gender reveal party fatality wall calendar. We made it to 36, 36 days without a gender reveal party fatality, which may be a new record before two men died last week after the plane they were flying over a gender reveal party at a beach in Mexico crashed into the ocean. They let off a little pink smoke from the plane. It's got a vagina, everybody, before taking that tragic nosedive right into the water. This is actually the second time a plane has crashed during a gender reveal party. Also this week, this asshole opened his mouth in front of a microphone. I could talk about this asshole. Everything God does is sustainable. Amen. It's sustainable. It goes on and on and on. It's perpetual. Sorry, when you have homosexual relationships, it's not perpetual. <laughs> Give them an island, they'll be gone in the 40 years, okay? Because they can't, God created us to be this way. There's so much common sense that needs to be applied to our policies, our procedures, the things that we do in our government. That's George Langdon, a GOP elected official in New York State, speaking at a Return to Liberty Fundamentalist Christian Conference in New York State last week. Everything God creates lasts forever. Tell that one to the next Triceratops you run into on the subway. As for putting gays on an island and all of us being gone in 40 years, Manhattan, last time I checked, is an island in New York State. 
And the gays, we've been putting ourselves on that island for way more than 40 years. And unlike the dinos and dodos, we haven't gone extinct. Put us all on an island, any island. I vote for New Zealand so long as we can keep the prime minister. Put us all on an island. And sooner or later, you're going to need a bigger island. Because straight people are just going to keep fucking us into existence. That's actually how this works. Straight people make gay people and gay people make pretty much everything else. But I want to talk about for a change is not an asshole, a non-asshole. Tim Keller, Reverend Tim Keller, he's one of the good ones, one of the nults, the not all like that Christians. He's an evangelical, but the church he founded in Manhattan, surrounded by gays, is controversial in evangelical circles because Keller's church is, quote, committed to the full inclusion of women and LGBT people. So I don't want to pick on Tim. He's not an asshole. But I do want to take serious issue with this asshole thing he tweeted out over the weekend. Here's Tim's tweet. Sexual love, if it's not expressed in an exclusive lifelong covenant relationship, is dehumanizing. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. Not just bullshit, that's harmful. Harmful bullshit. Not harmful to people like me, not to people who don't believe it or see through it. It's actually harmful to people who do believe it. Because people who believe that, people who believe that sex outside a committed relationship is inherently dehumanizing, those people will accept dehumanizing treatment from someone they're only having casual sex with because they won't feel like they're entitled to better. And people who believe that bullshit can also rationalize treating someone in a dehumanizing way if all they want from them is sex. Sex outside of a committed relationship is not dehumanizing. Even if you're a human who enjoys dehumanization or you're with someone who does, dehumanization is a kink, being put in a full rubber gimp suit with a mask, being turned into human furniture, dehumanization. Being dehumanized by someone because it turns you on or turns them on affirms your humanity as a human, as a human who's turned on by dehumanization. And if you pause for a second and think, you'll realize that what Tim is talking about here, what Tim is condemning, is most of the sex people have most of the time over most of their lives. Very, very few people marry the first person they have sex with. Very, very few people are virgins on their wedding nights. Are only virgins human? If you've had sex before marriage, where do you go to get your humanity back before you settle down or settle for someone else who also isn't fully human or has been dehumanized? Look, I don't, I don't need to tell you guys this, my regular listeners. I hope you know this. But you can spend one night with a person and treat them with kindness and have great sex that leaves them feeling affirmed and seen and pleasured and more fully human, even if you did put them in a gimp suit. You can also marry a virgin as a virgin and only have sex in the context of that exclusive lifelong covenant relationship and abuse your spouse psychologically and physically every day for the duration of your lifelong covenant relationship and take a person apart or be taken apart piece by piece over decades and hollow a human being out and leave a shell of a human being behind. Like I said, Tim Keller, unlike the other assholes in today's opening, Tim Keller seems like a good guy. One of the good ones, one of the nults. But I worry about the people who follow him, who believe this shit, this purity culture bullshit, whether it's coming from one of the good ones like Tim Keller or it's coming from one of the bad ones. It's bad. It's harmful. It's toxic. I know people who've been indoctrinated into purity culture find their way to my podcast because once every couple of months I get a letter from someone who says that they were raised in the evangelical 
alternate universe and they got online when they started to get out and they were looking for some actual information about sex and relationships and found their way to the love cast and it helped them. Helped them to love and accept themselves and helped them to see sex in a relationship or not as something that could be and should be joyful. As something that it's actually pretty easy for humans with a little effort and a little thought to get right and do right. Instead of as something sinful that it's almost impossible for humans not to get wrong. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, more guests, more questions, no ads. Sociology professor Kelsey Burke joins us to talk about evangelical Christians and the concept of sex addiction and how this has had disastrous consequences for us most recently in Atlanta. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan calling about a pandemic success story by an old lady. I'm in my 60s. I'm a church lady. I'm a grandmother. I've been married to the same man for 30 years. I've used pot uh, maybe once a year since my 20s because I never liked inhaling and I have a professional license that I'm really invested in protecting. The last 10 years, well, it's sex has been shifting. Each of us has been having some real hormonal changes and uh, making love stopped being so much about fireworks on the 4th of July and more like holding each other through a really beautiful sunrise. And that's been fine. Sex changes every decade. That's okay. Well, then the pandemic hit and uh, in a fit of stockpiling, I went out and bought some gummies and then put them away and kind of forgot about them. And months into the pandemic, I pulled him out, and I ate one, and uh, we were making love, and he was going down on me. And I've always been multiply orgasmic. Three was always my baseline. Well, I was high enough that I couldn't count, but he assures me I hit at least 10 from oral sex. It was a personal record after 30 years of marriage to one man in my 60s. One of the... Good things about being in hormonal fluctuation is you never know what to expect. And sweetheart, when you listen to this, it has never been boring with you. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. We also want to thank you for all of your calls, all of your response calls going back through the years. You have been a regular caller, a regular listener. Going back to the very start of the podcast, some of your response calls have played on past shows. And we remember with particular fondness your excellent advice to a woman, to another caller, about how to wash her vagina that we played on an episode of the Savage Lovecast at least a dozen years ago. And I just wanted to let you know on my behalf, Nancy's behalf, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth's behalf, that we really appreciate you. All right. If you want me to open next week's show with your sex success story before we get to everybody's problems, give us a call, 206-302-2064. Share your success story, and we might open next week's show with it. Hey, Dan. I am a cis woman in my mid-30s. I've only ever been with cis men, but I'm attracted to pretty much everybody. So I identify as bi. My husband and I have been together for 11 years and married for four and a half. And he is 100% the love of my fucking life. We both grew up super conservatively, but have had our liberal awakenings over the past decade or so. And part of my evolution has been consuming lots of media about love, sex, and relationships, including being a Magnum subscriber. Whoop, whoop. 
And in that process, I have come to believe that I am a hoe in my heart and that a monogamous relationship is not for me. I brought this up with my husband for the first time three years ago after I read The Ethical Slut, and we've talked about it regularly since then, but we're not on the same page yet. At first, he was shocked that I would want to open things up, and I certainly can't blame him for that since monogamy has always been the structure of our relationship. We've had some really tough conversations about it, some that turned into fights, and some that made us feel even more Twitter-pated. And if nothing else, we are now completely sure of our love for and commitment to each other. Recently, my husband's libido has taken a nosedive for several health-related reasons. I am pretty much always horny. And while I love to masturbate, I miss sex with a person. So I think that now would be a great time to start exploring non-monogamy. Intellectually, my husband agrees with me, but he's still having some emotional reactions to the idea. He says it doesn't feel equitable for me to run around having fun while he's at home doing nothing. Full disclosure, he's the breadwinner in our relationship by a long shot, although I do make my own money and would never ask him to pay for me to go on dates or anything like that. He also handles most of the quote-unquote adulty things in our household because I have severe ADHD that comes with executive dysfunction and makes me shitty at a lot of chores and tasks, so I fully understand where he's coming from. What can we do or what can I do to give back to him and make this feel more fair for him? Eight years into a marriage is uh, a little late to realize that you're an ethical slut, that you are polyamorous or that a monogamous commitment is not for you. And you're facing the challenge that so many other people have faced where you've made a monogamous commitment at a time in your life where that was what you thought you wanted or that was legitimately what you did want at that stage in your life. And now you've realized that maybe it was never right for you. Maybe you had been raised to believe that good people are monogamous and monogamous people are good and you want to be a good person. So of course you want a monogamy or maybe you've just outgrown it and it's not right for you anymore. So what do you do now? Well, you have to sort of retcon your relationship. You have to renegotiate the terms of your relationship and the person you're renegotiating those terms with, you need their consent to redefine your relationship. And if that person doesn't consent, well, then there will be conflict. There will be dragons. What happens then? Well, maybe you get left or maybe you leave, or maybe that person agrees under duress to accommodate your desire to fuck around with other people. And it becomes an engine of conflict in your relationship, not just the wanting to fuck around with other people, but the actual fucking around with other people. And on the other side of that, after you cross that Rubicon, after you start fucking around with other people, because it's what you want, because you've issued that ultimatum to your partner and they have reluctantly consented to you fucking around with other people to stay in the relationship. It's a price of admission that they may not be happy to pay, but they're willing to pay. When you get to the other side of that, when you get to the reality of you out there fucking other people, they may find it unbearable and decide to end the relationship then. Or they may find that it's a whole lot less scary, you fucking other people, than they thought it would be or less upsetting than they thought it would be. And what was a reluctant agreement what seemed like an enormous price of admission to pay becomes a, well, not a cheerful agreement, but an agreement that doesn't come with so much tension and conflict. Just they now agree to what they reluctantly agreed to in the past. Or they bolt, or they leave. And there are risks for you and your partner leaving that you're going to have to factor in 
to whether you're going to issue that ultimatum or not. Your partner makes most of the money in the relationship. Your partner does most of the chores and most of the dealing with bills and the grind of everyday life. And walking away from all of that with your severe ADHD, that's going to leave you in a pretty shitty position, even if you can have all the dick in the world that you want until you can find somebody else to partner with who can take care of washing the dishes, making the food, cleaning the house, making most of the money again. And that person, those kinds of people, they don't come along every day. So there are risks for you here. The conversation you have to have with your husband, if you are going to be allowed to do this, and it sounds like maybe he's already progressed a little bit because his libido is in the tank because of his health issues. And he knows that you're frustrated. He knows that you're horny. Three years ago, he found out that you would rather be in a non-monogamous relationship than a monogamous one, but you agreed to stay monogamous for him to honor the terms of the commitment that you made 11 years ago. And now instead of saying, I don't want you to do that, he's saying basically what's in it for me. Where's the equity? You get to fuck other people and that's what you want to do and I'm going to be home alone, left alone while you're off fucking other people. So what's in it for him? If he has no libido, if he has no interest in being sexual, you can't offer to allow him to do what you're doing, to run off and have the sex he doesn't want to have with other people he doesn't want to have it with. That sounds transactional, but maybe you offer or you step the fuck up and start taking care of more of the adulting, as they say, in your shared lives. If you can get online and make arrangements and go out there and do the the work, do the labor of finding other people to have sex with, you can do the fucking dishes. You can do the fucking yard work. You can do some of the taking care of the grind and paperwork of everyday life. Maybe. Maybe you can take some of those burdens off his hands, particularly now when he's struggling with a health issue that's tanking his libido, but apparently not tanking his earning ability or his ability to do all the chores, you said? Really? All the chores? Maybe in exchange for the permission slip that you want, for the accommodation that you want, for your libido and your desire to get with other people, you could step up after 11 years and do more for him, with him, to run your shared household and your shared lives. And if the effort you were putting in, it wasn't too much of a challenge for you mentally, if the effort you were putting in around taking care of shit around the house got you a permission slip to go off on the occasional Friday night and fuck somebody else, maybe it would be worth the sustained effort. And you would find focusing on that kind of grindy everyday life shit a little easier. But if you don't want to exit this relationship, you're going to have to get your husband's consent. A lot of people consent to opening up a relationship. They become, as I call them, puds, poly, or open under duress. And after their poly is under duress for a while, after they're open under duress for a while, they acclimate to it or they get used to it or they realize that their fears were unfounded and perhaps the happier, more satisfied, less resentful partner they have now that their partner can fuck other people is a better person for them too, a better person that for them to be with, someone they enjoy spending time with again, even being more sexual with in the wake of opening up the relationship again. That's sometimes a surprising development for people when they reluctantly open the relationship is that they find that there are benefits for them erotically, emotionally, sexually on the other side. 
that line. But the only way sometimes to find out what's on the other side of that line is to walk the fuck across it. And sometimes you got to be dragged across it. The risk for you in attempting to drag the person who makes most of the money and does most of the housework or all of the housework is being fucked out of that money and fucked out of that housework and having to pull your own weight and take care of yourself as a single person in the future. And you really have to wrestle with whether that's a risk you're willing to take to have the kind of freedom sexually that you would like to have. Hi, Dan. I'm a married woman in my mid-30s, and like so many other women of my age, I'm just now starting to really understand my sexuality, thanks to people like you and Esther Perel. It's been a really empowering and exciting time of my life, and thankfully I'm married to an awesome man who's a feminist and GGG and has gone on this journey with me. A couple years ago, I began sort of circling around the idea that I'm bi. I owe a lot to you and to Robin Ox and her philosophy that being bi is having the potential to be attracted to both men and women, not necessarily to the same degree or at the same time. And I now feel pretty confident in saying that's me. So how widely do I need to announce this? I've always considered myself an ally, and I believe in the importance of speaking your truth. And if me saying out loud that I'm bi could help someone else, I want to do that. But at the same time, my marriage is monogamous, so me announcing that I'm bi would be just that, an announcement. And I don't want to feel like I'm attention-seeking or taking space from people who truly need to share their voice. Do I have a responsibility to be vocal about this? How would I even explain it since it doesn't really change my life in any practical way? Or is this just something that I now know about myself and share privately with people I love? You aren't taking space from anyone by claiming to be bisexual. Bisexuality isn't an unrenewable resource. There's no scarcity. We're not going to run out of bisexuality. You can come out as bi and you haven't taken anything from anyone else. And potentially you will have helped someone like you, someone who may have entered into an opposite sex marriage and thought of themselves as straight and identified as straight and gradually came to the realization that no, they're bi. And just knowing they have friends and family who are bi in an opposite sex, long-term committed, sexually exclusive relationships may help someone else in your life or your orbit arrive at the self-conception that it took you so long to arrive at a little bit sooner. And so, yeah, you should totally come out as bi. You don't have to hire an airplane pulling a banner over your city announcing it. Coming out as gay, lesbian, bi, trans, asexual involves coming out to the people that you love, the people that you care about. At a certain point, that often tips into coming out to everybody generally and widely and broadly. You came out to my mom and my family as gay, came out to some friends as gay. Eventually, you know, I was in gay relationships. So I was perforce out as gay to people I went to school with and people I worked with. And it just kind of spread from there. But the first step and the most important step and the most consequential step and the thing that really changes people's attitudes about queer people is knowing queer people and knowing that someone in your life that you assumed was straight, maybe because they were in an opposite sex relationship, is not straight. And that assumption was faulty, not an irrational assumption. Most people in opposite sex relationships are indeed straight, but not all. And it's something that we should Bear in mind, sometimes meeting someone or knowing someone or being told by someone that we thought was straight or assumed to be straight or an opposite relationship actually isn't straight puts that in the back of our heads that maybe we shouldn't 
always make that assumption or maybe we should be ready, willing, and able to revise those assumptions when we get to know people better. So yeah, come the fuck out as bi to your husband, to your siblings, to your family, to close friends, to your intimates. And who knows, maybe one of your close friends, a woman who's married to a man and has been married to a man for a long time, is also bi and has not yet realized it, hasn't been exposed to Robin Oaks the way you've been exposed to Robin Oaks. Or maybe some of them already are bi and are doing what you're doing, hanging back right now, wondering if bisexuality is something that they have a right to claim and a bisexual identity has something they have a right to assert. And it is something you have a right to claim. And you would benefit from being out. All the studies show that people who are bi and closeted, that that creates stress in their lives and contributes to less than optimal mental health outcomes. So for yourself, you should come out as bi, but also for others. And just as you don't need to hire an airplane to pull a banner over your city, you don't have to make the conversations where you come out to friends and family feel so high stakes and so consequential. There are a lot of women in straight appearing relationships who are bi. And if someone assumes you're straight, you can just say, hey, actually, you know what? I'm bi. You can also, if you want to, have the tearful, hand-wringy conversation with your family and style it as one of those tearful coming outs. Or you can just drop it into a conversation as a fact about you. But you shouldn't fear dropping the conversation. You are part of the conversation. You're part of the queer community. Welcome. Hello, Dan. I am a 33-year-old cis female. I'm a conversion therapy survivor. I am still somewhat sex-averse. Uh, it's still causing me issues with guilt and general lack of uh, sexual interest. Overall, um, I'm in a polyamorous relationship so that my husband can have a uh, more exciting sex life than I can provide. Anyway, recently, I want to say about a year ago, I found myself uh, when I was driving trucks to suddenly be interested in the guys at the cruising sites and stuff that I'd encounter. I used to drive long haul, and these guys would have fun in the woods in their car and stuff like that. And I realized, like, the act of watching this was a huge turn-on. And I, I slowly explored and I found out that I kind of have a very strong um, exhibitionist streak and a very strong voyeuristic streak that I did not know was there, but they tend to really pump up my sexual interest. So like on a normal day, you know, having sex with my husband may have me at a two, whereas this has me up to a nine or a 10. So this runs me into a problem. I guess this, this is my real question here is I don't want to step on issues of, I guess, consent. I've been interested in watching pornography about like voyeurism and exhibitionism, that kind of thing, but I also don't want to run into trouble with the consent involved. Like, is someone consenting to be watched? Is they jack off? I, I'm, I'm just worried about that. So, I guess I want to know is there other resources for someone like me? This is their real sexual drive. And where can I go to find these resources? Like, uh, how do I know that the porn is filmed consensually? How do I know that I'm not actually accidentally violating someone's privacy? Or how do I know that someone wants to engage in exhibitionist behavior with me? I don't know. Like, how, how do I even get into this world and how do I do it um, ethically? You know, my husband is definitely not into these kind of things. Neither is our boyfriend. They're both anxious about that kind of stuff. But, like, how do I involve them in this? And how do I get them to kind of be more 
uh, interested in sharing this with me because I feel like this could be a good way to finally have an active sexual life with them. There are so many places gay men can go alone or together where they can observe other people, other gay men having sex, or they can be observed having sex with their partner, where you can be a voyeur, where you can be an exhibitionist, where you can be both in the course of a single evening. You can ping pong back and forth between watching and showing off. Considering the almost limitless opportunities once the world opens back up, once we're on the other side of this pandemic, once everyone's vaccinated, considering the almost limitless possibilities that you have as a gay man to roll into a cruisy area where the people having sex in public are knowingly consented to being observed. They're having public sex. Sometimes arguably people in these cruisy areas violate the more hypothetical rights of people not to see that most cruisy areas are very, very secluded. You have to be extremely lost or extremely looking for them to find them. Most gay men who have public sex in public cruising areas worry about being victimized, worry about violence, and so go to some lengths, sometimes great lengths, to make sure the only other people who stumble into this cruising area are other people who are cruising. But you can go to bathhouses. You can do all sorts of things. So you don't need to rely necessarily on problematic pornography. You have plenty of opportunities as an exhibitionist and a voyeur to get your show off, get your look at, groove on without violating anybody else's consent. There is a lot of voyeur porn out there. Some of it is ethically produced. Usually you know voyeur porn is ethically produced when it's just so clunky and obvious that this is consensual. And that fact that somebody isn't being violated, that somebody isn't being watched without their knowledge, ruins voyeur porn for some voyeurs, for many voyeurs. But that is, if you're worried about the ethics, the only kind of voyeur porn that you can consume ethically. Hopefully one day we'll have a steady stream of voyeur and exhibitionistic porn made by sex robots. There's animation out there. There are lots of dirty stories written, lots of erotica, written erotica about voyeurism and other sexual pleasures, sexual interests that really can't be indulged very ethically or ethically at all without the consent of all participants. And so maybe read about it instead of watching it. Maybe you could cultivate a taste for written erotica to scratch this particular itch. And to other voyeurs out there who aren't gay, there are so many people who are putting it out there, who are asking to be looked at, that sneaking up to somebody's house and peering through a window, using a long-range telescope to spy on someone who isn't asking to be looked at just seems like an asshole move. We live in what is now ought to be a paradise for voyeurs. We live in such an exhibitionistic culture that you can get your voyeur itch scratched just by following the right people on Instagram who are showing off all the fucking time, who want to be looked at. There are so many people out there who want to be looked at that you can look at up closer from afar without them knowing you're looking because they're pushing it out there to the whole world. And it seems to me that with a little effort and focus and blowing a few loads in the right direction, you should be able to satisfy the voyeur thing there if you are interested in satisfying the voyeur thing ethically. 
as we should all be interested. We should all be interested in satisfying our sexual urges and desires in an ethical way without harming anyone else. As for your your partners, you say you have a husband, you say your husband or you have a boyfriend, you share a boyfriend. How do you get them interested? Well, you have conversations about public sex. You have an honest conversation about how this is something you really enjoy. You might want to leave out that sex with the husband is a two and observing a couple of people in a cruisy spot having sex is a 10 for you. But if watching turns you on and they're having sex, you can watch if they're comfortable having public sex in one of those cruisy spots that's pretty private by dint of being a very hard to get to spot. Maybe they would do that with or for you or maybe they're comfortable having sex in a bathhouse and being observed by you. Or if they're not comfortable having sex in a bathhouse or a sex club or at a big kink party, maybe they're comfortable with you having sex in those venues and they would be willing to tag along and be in your audience, watch you while you exhibit yourself. There's lots of in-betweens. And for gay men, there's not just the cruisy public spaces where there's the risk of being in public, the risk of getting caught, the risk of traumatizing somebody who does the hard work of stumbling into that gay cruisy area or the risk of violence. There are lots of venues, bathhouses, sex clubs, kink parties where gay men can get together, a big open space that has lots of other men coming and going, lots of other men around, but only people who want to see that are in there. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-30s female on the West Coast with a question about how much space I should give an ex. Last summer, I briefly dated a trans woman who had only been in a relationship one time previously before her transition. We met through the kink community and after a couple weeks of talking online, decided to meet up for some dom sub play and see where it went from there. On the second date, she somehow ended up sleeping over, which I was not ready for, and the next day I had to ask her repeatedly to go home. We had to talk about our expectations, and I let her know I wasn't looking for anything serious or romantic. I wanted to keep it casual. She said she was fine with that. But over the course of the next five weeks, it became increasingly obvious she was thinking we were in an epic love story, while I was just a crotchety old divorcee who wanted to get whacked with a flogger every so often. We had the same conversation about expectations every couple weeks. Finally, after six weeks of dating, I broke it off because I just felt like I was spending all of our dates defending my boundaries instead of genuinely connecting. She continued to text me pretty much constantly to make sure we could stay friends until finally I got tired of asking for space and I told her to stop messaging me and I would let her know when I was ready to be friends. Eventually I did, but she told me she wasn't ready and needed space. I totally understood and respected that request. I haven't interacted with her in any way since then. She's blocked me on FetLife and has posted about me on other media, how she loved me but I wasn't who she thought I was and things like that. I really feel for her because she because I was the first person who saw the true version of her and still wanted her, but then I rejected her and that sucks. This is going to sound really patronizing, but it reminds me of when I was a teenager at the beginning of my dating life and all those short romances that were so huge and immediate and painful. I want to give her all the time she needs, even if that's forever, to heal. However, it's been seven months since I broke it off with her. I'm fully vaccinated and ready to re-enter the kink community, but she's been active this whole time and I think it's an important source of support. I suspect that if I show up at a virtual or in-person event she's attending, that's going to be really hard for her to deal with, not to mention awkward for both of us. I know I have a right to attend those events, but after I asked her repeatedly for space and didn't get it, am I being a hypocrite by re-entering a space where I know she's active? I could really use some advice, Dan. 
Everybody's got to grow the fuck up. Sorry, that's just my answer. Everybody grow the fuck up. You were right. You were actually very adult. You laid down your boundaries. She was within her rights as an adult to want more and to ask for more. And you had every right to say no and to end the relationship. And she has every right to have a sad about that relationship ending and to share her sadness online or elsewhere, wherever it is that she gets emotional support and comfort. Doesn't sound like she lied about you or tried to get you dragged or canceled or anything else. She was just having a sad about you. And now you're both going to have to be in the same room, a big room full of people at the same time. I remember being young and gay and getting dumped and then having to share the only gay bar in my college town with the guy who dumped me. And then, after I'd been in college for a little bit, with the guys, plural, I'd dumped. And yeah, it's awkward, but what are you going to do when there's just one gay bar in town? Chester Street, Champaign, Illinois. When there's just one gay bar, you have to learn how to orbit each other, like a couple of moons around a planet to stay the fuck away from each other, or to walk up to each other like adults and chit-chat amiably for a moment before going your separate ways before making out with the new boys that you wanted to make out with. And you, I'm sure you and your ex of sorts can find it within yourselves to do the same. Go to the event. As a courtesy, you could let her know that you'll be attending this event and you don't want it to be awkward. Saying to somebody, I don't want this to be awkward, doesn't magically make it not awkward, but it can lower the awkward temperature. And then when you see each other, a smile from you and a nod from across the room not only signals to her that you're willing to make the smallest of efforts, but also signals to anybody else who's clocking you guys that it's okay and that you're chill. And then maybe you can walk up to her the next time or even later that night and just say hi and you hope she's well and having fun and you'll always treasure the time. And don't say that. Don't say you'll always treasure the time. You don't want to fill her with false hopes about getting back together if that's something she's still thinking about. But you can let her know that she came into your life at a time when you needed her and it was great. And it was a great STR for you without filling her with false hopes about an LTR breaking out again. But you're just going to have to power through it. You're just going to have to be the grown-ups in the room, the both of you, in a room full of other grown-ups. If it's a kink party, if it's a play party, everybody's allegedly a grown-up. And you can act like it. And sometimes when we act like it, it's an act. Sometimes we fake it till we make it. Sometimes we have to perform being the grown-ups that we wish we were. And this may be one of those times. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation about the man who shot up three spas slash massage parlors in Atlanta a few weeks ago, I am not going to say his name, he told the police he was a sex addict, that he visited the spas where he murdered eight people, including six Asian women, and he visited them before as a client. And he told the police that he did what he did to remove the temptation. The shooter's father was a youth pastor. The shooter had been in and out of Christian rehab programs for quote-unquote sex addiction. Kelsey Burke is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she researches how sex and religion collide in American culture and politics. She has done extensive research on what she calls the Christian sex addiction complex. And she wrote for Slate, The Dark Tales of the Christian Sex Addiction Industry, published shortly after the Atlanta shooting. Professor Burke, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you for having me on. Uh, can I call you Kelsey? 
Absolutely. Thanks. First things first, before we we get into it and get into the article, sex addiction, is it or is it not a thing? That's a great question. So psychologists are really wrapped up in this debate about what should we call this thing? Should it be addiction? Should it be hypersexuality, compulsive sexual behavior? As a sociologist, I'm less engaged in those debates, and I study sex addiction to the extent that it is real in some people's lives. They believe they experience it. And so the questions I ask is, um, how is that made to be meaningful for particular groups? And um, as you mentioned in the introduction, there's a, a really interesting history that stems from the sex addiction recovery movement and how it collides with uh, white evangelical Christianity. And movements to ban pornography, to continue to keep sex work criminalized, that the sex addiction idea, meme, uh, argument is being put into the service of all sorts of evangelical right-wing anti-sex goals. Yeah, I think this is a really important point because it shows how Christian sex addiction rhetoric is one arm of, I think, a broader political movement whose aim is precisely what you described, to criminalize pornography and crack down on sex work. So conservative Christians, you know, have mobilized for well over a century really to oppose all forms of sex work. Um, This is a term they avoid, actually, and instead use prostitution or trafficking because they find they see all sex work, even if it's a woman's chosen career path, to be fundamentally exploitative and harmful. And so I think this belief, when it's coupled with sex addiction rhetoric, which presents men's sexuality as potentially out of control, can be a really toxic stew. Um, and as part of this addiction rhetoric, you know, um, men themselves aren't blamed for their addiction. And instead, it's the sex industry, which, you know, had really tragic consequences a couple of weeks ago. So I, I often talk on the show when you see people, you know, who are you know, who are prominent homophobes who are outed as gay themselves or people who are doing, you know, gay conversion therapy and they read so gay. And I'm thinking of one particular Marcus Bachman when I make that point. And I often talk about how these gay guys, these self-hating gay guys, uh, externalize their internal conflict. They don't accept themselves as gay, can't accept anyone else as gay. And to attack their own homosexuality, they attack other gay people. And it seems to me that this is a riff on that theme. The way men who get wrapped up in Christian sex addiction therapy or counseling are encouraged to regard the culture as assaulting them. You know, what women wear, what women do, you know, what's on YouTube or what's on MTV, if anyone watched MTV anymore, and to externalize their anger about their desires because they can't accept their desires as normal and healthy. I think that's right. And, you know, there's also interesting overlap in the kind of obsession with male biology or men's brains, both in sort of figuring out what evangelical Christians call same-sex attraction alongside sex and porn addiction. I've interviewed a number of Christian men who participate in pornography addiction recovery programs. And one of the men that I talked to, he told me that he, as a teenager, started looking at porn and eventually started looking at gay porn. But he didn't believe 
believed that he was gay because he thought, you know, according to the messages that he'd received about his porn addiction, that, you know, mainstream straight porn is kind of like the gateway drug into more extreme or, or deviant forms of pornography. So he just thought that that was a sign of his addiction, not that he was actually attracted to men. And it was when he quit using porn and he credits that to the, the porn addiction treatment program he participated in that he actually came to accept that he was in fact um, gay. And so he now, you know, lives his life as an openly gay Christian. But I think that's a really interesting story that it gets very complex and contradictory, the messages that um, evangelicals are sending um, young people uh, about sex. So how do you think the what you describe as the Christian sex addiction complex played into the violence we saw in Atlanta? Well, when I write about it as a as a complex or an industry, it truly is an industry. So, you know, for white evangelical men, there are books, there are support groups you can find in churches or online. Um, there are apps where you can track your days of sobriety, um, software programs. And this industry stems from a broader Christian culture and market that people have been talking about a lot in the news over the past couple of weeks and naming purity culture. And so the emphasis is avoiding um, sexual sin, which for these conservatives, conservative Christians would be any sexual thought or action outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. And I think within purity culture, there are a okay, lot wait, of Wait, wait, I want to break in right there for a second to yeah. say, then that's most sexual thoughts. If it's yeah, that's any right. sexual thought so, or action outside monogamous Christian heterosexual marriage, that's most thoughts. And so everyone is going to fail at that, which I think is what churches want to do. Like if they can control you because you feel sick or sinful or broken and you can only get healing and wholeness at the Jesus shop, you're never going to be able to walk away from the Jesus shop. And I think this is why we see, like, for people, for men who uh, perceive themselves to be addicted to porn, uh, white Protestant men are much more likely to perceive themselves to be addicted, I think, precisely for this reason, because what for many of us would be normal sexual feelings or behaviors are really thought to be, you know, pathologized, to be a real a real problem within this culture. So I think these are messages that are inherently contradictory. And for boys and men in particular, they're told that they have these sexual desires and urges, and they're told that they're natural, but also that they're very strong and that they need to be controlled. So this this language of addiction, I think, helps evangelicals come to terms with some of these contradictions that um, men and boys who, quote unquote, act out sexually are doing it because of a sign of physical addiction. And that, again, remo removes blame from the men themselves, but it still puts pressure on them to change their behavior. Well, yeah, it says you can't you can't control these. These are natural, but maybe you can control everything else in the world, control women, control the pornography industry, if you, you know, your desires are at once present and yours, but also provoked somehow or instilled by others who are outside your control, but maybe there's something that you can do about that. And that's kind of what this shooter in Atlanta did. He says that he went into the, he went into these spas that he had patronized and murdered all these women to remove temptation from his life and the lives of other men struggling with the quote-unquote addiction that he was struggling with. It seems to me that the lies that were pounded into his head about sex and desire and the self-acceptance that he was denied as a price of salvation led to this violence in a very direct way. 
I think that's right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric among an evangelical anti-porn or af- anti-trafficking movement that suggests that sex workers themselves are, are victims, you know, that they need to be protected from such violence. But I think at the same time, we have to look to how messages within evangelical culture really place blame directly on the sex industry, which includes, of course, sex workers themselves. So, um, you know, we don't know if the Asian women who were targeted were, in fact, sex workers, but we do know that the shooter perceived them that way and um, that this was a reason that he directed his his violence in that direction. Okay, I don't want to name the shooter, but I'm going to go ahead and name the church where that he attended, where his father was a youth pastor of all fucking things. Crab Apple First Baptist released a statement after the shooting that said no blame, among other things, it said no blame can be placed upon the victims. He alone, the shooter, is responsible for his evil actions and desires. The women that he solicited for sexual acts are not responsible for his perverse sexual desires. These are the people he went to for therapy about sex, for counseling about sex, people who told him his desires were evil and there was no way to act on them without embracing evil. And then he turns around and does something evil. Yeah. And I think, and I wrote about this in the piece for Slate that I I think, you know, at the same time that many, you know, prominent Christian leaders are denouncing the violence, they're also, you know, sending messages that give a real script for that violence. I think it's, it's worth pointing out that there are 16 states so far that have passed these resolutions that declare pornography to be a public health crisis. And we really see this language at work. Most of the resolutions claim that pornography is biologically addictive, and they most also uh, say that pornography directly causes violence. So this is really just playing out sort of the the scare rhetoric that is surrounding um, broader conservative evangelical language. So in your piece for Slate, you write that sex therapy, the usual goal, the goal of mainstream, not evangelical Christian sex therapy or counseling about people who feel that they're can't control themselves or they feel compulsive about their sexual behavior. They can't turn away from porn or close the goddamn laptop. But the goal is self-acceptance rather than abstinence and control. I think that's smart. What people often come back at me with is, well, what if you have desires, sexual desires that are can't be acted on morally, uh, that there's no moral way to do them, there's no consensual way to do them, or that – you feel very deeply conflicted about without it being a religious conflict. So, so what do you mean by, you know, what's the opposite of abstinence and control for someone who struggles in their life with issues around sex and sexual behavior? Well, I think for all of us, you know, we have uh, values and ethics that guide our choices and that, you know, it's the therapist's goal to try to help our behavior and choices align with those values. And that would be shared from, you know, I've interviewed clinicians who work within a sex addiction framework who are not religious, and they would say they share that goal as well. And, um, you know, I think it's it's worth pointing out that from, uh, you know, secular clinicians who work within a sex addiction framework, they don't think that that looking at porn, you know, a few times a month or something like this would count as a porn addiction. They see sort of stricter diagnostic um, criteria, even though, of course, it's not a diagnosis according to the DSM. Um, but So I think there are some shared goals among a therapeutic model, which is to get us to, to live in ways that align with our values. But when that those values are prescribed by a conservative religious system, there's really very little wiggle room, um, 
you know, w- within that. The thing I always tell people is that when it comes to sexual desires, even ones you never want to act on or feel you can't act on morally, the idea is to channel those in ways that are responsible, you know, to enjoy your fantasies with consenting adults if possible or to enjoy your fantasies all by yourself uh, alone in a room if it's not possible to enjoy them with other consenting adults or you don't want to for whatever reason. But they can't be extinguished. You can't reach into your sexual circuit board and rip it out. And it does seem to me I often encounter people who, who that's what they want. They want to know how to turn the switch, to, to, to turn it off like a light switch, like the song from uh, Book of Mormon. And that's not possible. And I sometimes think that frustrates people with mainstream, non-Jesus-y, non-evangelical Christian sex, quote-unquote, addiction therapy, is that it doesn't promise them what it literally can't deliver, but evangelical sex addiction therapy will promise what can't be delivered. And I think that that draws people in who want to reach into that circuit board and rip it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for evangelical Christians, you know the the sort of holy grail is marriage. Like, of course, straight, monogamous, cisgender marriage, which solves everything. I have never gotten a call from anyone in a heterosexual monogamous marriage who was unhappy about anything. It's kind of a miracle. All my calls are from single people and queers. Ha ha ha. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted. Please go on. No, that I mean, that's exactly my point, I think. And and the reason I started studying porn addiction was because I was studying um, this this big genre of Christian sex advice. And um, it, there's, there's really an obsession with pornography and how it's damaging Christian men. But evangelicals are really good at taking popular trends in secular culture and putting this Christian spin on those trends to make them their own. So like Christian rock music or pop music. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to sex advice, like back in the 1970s when books like Joy of Sex were an instant bestseller, Christians began writing their own sex advice books that really resembled secular counterparts in a lot of ways, but they blend practical advice with this kind of theology about how God wants for married, straight, monogamous Christians to have great sex. And the big contradiction is that even if evangelicals are doing everything right, following all the teachings and messages that they receive about sex and not having it until they get married, then once they get married, of course, they have no idea how to do it. And they can't turn to podcasts like yours for answers because, you know, you might have some practical advice, but you certainly have the ideology wrong. And so this is why they've created these resources for themselves. So there are books along with blogs and message boards, even online stores um, run by Christians that sell sex toys, all created uh, by and for conservative Christians to, you know, make their sex lives better. You wrote the book on Christian sex advice, columnists, blogs, podcasts, called Christians Under Covers. And I understand I haven't read it. I didn't know about it until I was about to talk to you today. I'm going to go get it and read it. There's an entire chapter dedicated to evangelical men who want to be pegged. That's right. Yes. Which which part of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do they lean on to justify that? Well, there's an often quoted verse from Hebrews that talks about, I'm not going to get the exact language right, but it's basically like anything goes in the marriage bed, that nothing can be defiled in the marriage bed. And so what I write about in that particular chapter is how some, um, you know, I, I think really sincerely believing evangelical Christians sort of push that logic as far as it can go and end up talking in, in really 
interesting ways about how to justify, you know, what I what I call sort of gender subversive sex, things like pegging. So as as part of my research, this was for my dissertation that eventually became my first book. I spent hours and hours reading blogs and message boards. And one day I came across a thread posted by a really well-respected and active member of a, a really large message board. It had like 25,000 members at the time that were posting, you know, just hundreds of threads every day. And on this particular post, he asked if anybody could recommend a dildo because his wife had finally agreed to try pegging with him. And my mind just exploded with questions and I followed the thread. Um, I remember, I don't remember what what product was recommended, but I do remember one guy recommended um, a toy and he said, it's not very phallic looking if you care about that. And I thought that is just that is amazing. Does that mean that, you know, some evangelical men don't mind if they're the dildos they use resemble penises? So I, I it's and I'm constantly amazed that this is part of my job, that, that I get to follow these this like trail of breadcrumbs of where my questions lead me. So I ended up searching all of these sites for any discussion about men's interest in, you know, anal play or other seemingly gender subversive sex acts. And, you know, I discovered that they're able to justify this interest by convincing other users that they have, you know, a sincere devotion to God. So they'll talk about how they pray to God about their interests and they get validation from their wives that they are, as, as one user put it, 100% a man. As they are. I don't think – I've been saying that forever. If a man and a woman are doing it in bed together, it's straight sex. Whoever's getting penetrated. So hopefully maybe a little bit of my advice about being the on the receiving end of anal penetration play uh, has seeped into some of these Christian blogs. Uh, one last question before we go. You speak to men who are seeking out or getting Christian sex addiction counseling who are in these programs. Are you ever tempted to just shake them by the shoulders and tell them to run? That's a good question. I think that's a question that, um, yeah, some of my friends and family wonder about. I approach my research, I think the primary driver is um, curiosity. So I really try to listen and learn. I'm not sure if it would do much good if I told them to turn and run. Other people can do the job of, um, you know, telling them to turn and run. And I try to um, listen to their stories to, to try to make some sense of them. Kelsey Burke, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Check out her recent piece at Slate, The Dark Tales of the Christian Sex Addiction Industry. And you have a new book. You're working on a new book coming out soon? It will be out next year. On? It is on debates about pornography. So drawing from interviews with everyone from perceived porn addicts to porn stars. Professor Burke, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. Female, early 30s, living in the Midwest. Last year, my fiance and I postponed our wedding and all related activities for obvious pandemic-related reasons. As more people in our communities are getting vaccinated against COVID and numbers are overall improving, some friends of mine reached out to discuss potentially resuming planning of my bachelorette party. So, we're exploring traveling as a group of five or six women to Las Vegas for Memorial Day weekend. One of these friends uh, is my best friend from college. However, she recently shared with me over email that she has not yet been vaccinated against COVID uh, and never plans to be. 
She said she wanted to be upfront about this in case anyone else in the group felt uncomfortable with her coming as a result. The rest of us are already vaccinated or expect to be vaccinated within the next month or so. So one of my other friends potentially going on this trip is high risk and currently preparing to undergo IVF treatment. Uh, So even though she is vaccinated, her response was, quote, I'm not going to be the one to say she shouldn't be able to go. I'm just going to say that my general vibe these days is anxious. My college best friend did not give a reason as to why she's refusing, and I haven't asked yet. I suspect that if it was medical in nature that she would have already shared that. And I'm not sure whether the reason should play a part in the decision as to what to do anyway. I thought about putting her in a separate room, but I don't think it's realistic to try and socially distance from her for the entirety of the weekend. I've thought about asking her to get tested and socially distance beforehand. Um, My fiance says he thinks none of these will make a difference with my other friend's comfort levels because the real reason they're uncomfortable is more emotional than logical. So while the CDC says it's okay for vaccinated people to um, interact with unvaccinated without masks. Um, And really, I don't think this situation presents much more risk than we'll be assuming by getting on planes and going out on the town. Her vaccine refusal is uncomfortable for some of my friends, and I get that. I think it's a normal response. I really want to see if I can make this work for everyone, but as much as I want to include my college best friend, I don't think it's worth making anyone else feel unsafe. And I'm sad because I'm disappointed in her and because I potentially can't include her. And I worry that um, by telling her she can't come, that our friendship will suffer or even end. I know that's not on me, but I still love her and this hurts. So what are your thoughts? What do you think I should do? You should ask your friend, why your college best friend, why she's not getting vaccinated. Not that I think the answer really matters much to planning this bachelorette party. It would be interesting to know why she's not getting vaccinated. If she's not getting vaccinated because she's a QAnon crazy person, Trumper, fucking anti-vax idiot, well, that would be good info to have because you probably wouldn't want to spend a weekend anywhere with that person. Vaccinated or unvaccinated, Las Vegas or not Las Vegas, bachelorette party or not a bachelorette party. Probably someone you'd want to, if not cut out of your life, cut out of your plans for the weekend for sure. On the other hand, I'm really having a hard time wrapping my head around how precious your friends are being about this one person known to you being unvaccinated, when you are headed to Las Vegas in May for a weekend, when there are going to be millions and millions of people running all over the country who are still unvaccinated. And I don't want to be a sneering coastal elitist or anything, but I have been to Las Vegas, the colonial Williamsburg of secondhand smoke. You walk around like, wow, people used to live like this. It seems to me to be the kind of place Trumpers and anti-vax nutjobs and people who don't care much about their own health or anyone else's health are likely to be congregating and likely to have continued congregating throughout the pandemic and likely to congregate in May. So your friend who's at high risk, who's undergoing IVF, 
fingers crossed that the IVF um, works out for your friend and, and fingers crossed that your friend stays safe for the rest of the pandemic and has a successful pregnancy and birth. Fingers crossed. But if she's really concerned for her health or safety or for her fetus, if the IVF treatment is successful, what the fuck is she doing at a bachelorette party in Las Vegas in May at the tail end of a pandemic? It's almost April and we're entering what looks to be like a fourth wave as people drop their guards because more and more people are vaccinated, as more and more people take really, you know, when we've been under a lot of pressure for a very long time, I can understand why people are chomping at the bit, but as more and more people take unreasonable risks at the tail end of this pandemic, more and more young people are getting infected and winding up hospitalized. Seems like you might have wanted to schedule that bachelorette party for maybe Labor Day or Thanksgiving instead of Memorial Day. It feels like you're partying a few yards shy of the finish line. But that's just my opinion. You're free to do what you want to do, but it doesn't make any sense. Your friend who's undergoing the IVF treatment, all your other vaccinated friends by going to Las Vegas, you are knowingly going to be in rooms, in elevators, in restaurants, in airplanes with people who are not vaccinated. So if your friend has some realistic reason for not being vaccinated, some actual legitimate, and I don't know what that reason would be, but I bet we'll get some calls, some actual legitimate reason for not getting vaccinated – you might want to take that into account because if it turns out that she's not a QAnon fucking lunatic who thinks Bill Gates is going to put a chip in her arm or whatever George Soros is alleged to be trying to do. You don't want to hang out with her anyway. So disinvite her. But don't pretend and your friends shouldn't pretend that you're somehow going to be in this little vaccine bubble 24-7 while you're in Las Vegas, safe and separate from everyone who is too stupid to get vaccinated promptly as soon as they can. If that's how you felt, you wouldn't be going to Las Vegas for your bachelorette party. You would be having your bachelorette party in a beautiful cabin on top of a mountain where all y'all could be secluded and alone and you didn't have to share the circus circus buffet with a bunch of idiots who last year went to Branson, Missouri for Memorial Day weekend. Hi, Don, Nancy, and tech-savvy at-risk youth, 23-year-old by male living in Ireland. I broke up with my girlfriend of four years in December of 2020. It was a pretty good relationship in a lot of ways, and it was my first real love. Basically, when we met, she was de the definition of toxically monogamous, jealous over nothing but a compliment to a female friend. She didn't talk about her feelings, and she kept a lot of stuff bottled up when something bothered her. I had a good upbringing and have no problems being vulnerable and opening up to people, so I tried to encourage her to do the same. Two years into our relationship, during a pretty big argument we had specifically about her not communicating, about why she was depressed and being particularly distant, in floods of tears and upset, she told me about her brother sexually abusing her when she was younger, and that she had also had a number of instances where she had been sexually assaulted. Obviously, I did try and be supportive. I encouraged her to seek counselling and therapy. And didn't push the topic with her because it's something she 100% has the right to take at her own pace. We talked a little about it maybe once or twice a year for the last two years of our relationship. And I did continue encouraging her to seek counselling, which only happened for one session in the last year of our relationship. And only happened after another painful teeth pulling. 
she definitely struggled with depression and she did tell me that she was making progress with her therapist nowadays through therapy. I invested a lot of myself in trying to help her and be kind and caring. She never really learned how to open up about her feelings while we were together and became very frustrating for both of us as we butted heads about it. This had knock-on effects into many aspects of our relationship in the last year. Fast forward to the beginning of March, about three months after we broke up, we had sort of kept in contact, and in the chatting we did, she told me about how she'd been seeing a therapist for a couple of months and told me about her personal development, all of which genuinely made me happy to hear. The stuff she hadn't been doing while we were together that ultimately led me to want to end the relationship. I called her one of the nights to talk and asked if we could try again. She said no when she was seeing someone else. She also said she didn't love me anymore, and that totally broke my heart. I feel really disappointed that I invested so much of myself in someone, and that after we broke up is when she finally took my advice about many things. Not just about the mental health, but also about her sexuality and her identity as an individual. Did I mess up by investing so much of myself in someone else? I wasn't perfect, and I definitely could have been a better version of myself, but I feel like after all that seeing my advice taken and her trying to be the best version of herself now really sucks because I spent three out of four years really trying to help her grow and be happier. Now we're done because it didn't happen while we were together. I don't want to get back together. I had a good moment of clarity after our talk, and it wouldn't have worked even if she said yes, and I'm glad she did say no. But what can I do better for the next time? Do I not invest in other people as much, or do I make more of an effort to encourage someone to look after themselves? I don't want to bag on you, because at the end of the call, you see through your own shit. But at the beginning of the call, it sort of sounds like you're arguing that this person who was a mess when you were together was obligated to stay a mess after the relationship ended so that you wouldn't feel cheated out of the years you had invested in her and encouraging her to seek the help that she clearly needed without result. And then seeing results after the relationship ended made you feel like those years were wasted. I don't think so. And you don't think so either. You in a very real sense left this person in better condition than you found them. You honored, even though age gap here, it's not always about age gaps, you honored the campsite rule to the fullest extent while you were together for four years. You encouraged her to seek the help that she needed to seek. Help she only began to really sincerely seek after the relationship ended. That often happens. Sometimes we don't get off our asses and go get the help that we need until everything is taken from us. Until we lose the job, lose the relationship, lose the, lose whatever, lose the support of our friends and family. Sometimes we have to hit the cliche rock bottom before we do something about getting the help that we need. And that may have been the case here. It may have been the end of this relationship. It may have been losing you and the support that you offered her that inspired her to go get support elsewhere, support she clearly needed, support that may have helped her see that although you were the right person for her to be with the last four years, you're not the right person for her to be with in the future. And you get that and you understand that. We are all of us a mass of contradictions. There is some petty side of yourself that feels cheated, cheated out of the time you invested in her, but also cheated out of the relationship you could have had, not with her forever if you weren't destined to be together forever, but with her for a few years where she was healthier and more functional because she'd gotten the help that you had encouraged her to get. Maybe for some of those years, you were the help that she was getting and getting help from you made her feel like consciously or subconsciously, most likely subconsciously, she didn't need to go get it elsewhere. Didn't need to go get it from the professional. She clearly needed to go get it from. Well, now she's doing that 
And you're happy for her. By the end of the call, you're happy for her. By the end of the call, you agree. By the end of your question, you agree that you shouldn't be together and you're not pining for her anymore, although you were before. So what are the lessons for you going forward? Well, maybe you spent too much time beating your head against the wall. If losing you was what ultimately prompted her to go get help, Maybe if she lost you after a year and three months, after that good year and then the three shitty months, or after two years, maybe you'd be a little less resentful if you hadn't continued to fight and fight and fight to to save her. Maybe you'd be less resentful now. Maybe this is the lesson. Maybe this is the takeaway for you. You'd be feeling less like not she cheated you, but you cheated you. Out of the time, you continued to invest in her after it was clear that she wasn't going to go get the kind of help she needed to be in good enough working order to be in a relationship with you or anyone else in the first place. And so it's not that you go out from here and you only date people who are in perfect working order because nobody out there is in perfect working order. Maybe the takeaway for you here is that after a point you stop investing in a relationship, if it's not functional, if that person that you're with isn't healthy or functional, if that person needs professional help and refuses to get it, despite your encouragement, maybe you end it. End it then. End it after the first two or three or four times you encourage them to get the help that they need or after encouraging them for what? You can arbitrarily set a time limit, three months, six months, nine months, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever investment you're comfortable making in a future partner. But she's not obligated to stay in a bad place because she didn't get to a good place while you guys were together. She didn't cheat you out of anything. And you know that again, I'm not trying to drag you here. You get that. You get to that by the end of your call. And I think you knew that all along, but next time, if you find yourself in a similar situation with a similar person, with somebody who needs help and is refusing to get it, maybe you get out a little sooner. Hey Dan, queer kinkster mom in Brooklyn here. I have to thank you, Dan. In 2017, I discovered the podcast and binged all the archives only to discover my masturbatory habits could be improved and expanded. I trained my clit to come by scrumping. By following your advice, I sweated it out and stopped scrumping and succeeded in training my clit to enjoy a vibrator, which led to new levels of pleasure galore. Now I can do both which is awesome since I don't take my Hitachi everywhere I go. So here's my question. Can I retrain my erotic imagination the same way? I've been an active sub since puberty. And my last relationship, let's just say we practiced unhealthy power dynamics, sexually and in real life, kind of. I'm seeing a nice guy now, totally attractive. He's been taking me out once a week since January. We went to the spa last Sunday. He says he wants to cuddle and give me a back rub. He kisses me on the top of the head. The idea of him touching my back is awkward. We touched tongues once, and it was vaguely nauseating. Can I train my desires to get off on back rubs? I think I'm attracted to him. Do I stop masturbating to my same old, punished, humiliated, and abandoned fantasies? I really don't want to fantasize about being a sub anymore. Look, you want to drink somebody's spit or you don't want to drink somebody's spit. It's not about retraining 
yourself erotically, emotionally. You're either into this guy or you're not into this guy. If you recoil when he touches your back, if you have no desire to touch his tongue with your tongue, much less drink a pint of his spit in a single sitting, you can't will that into existence. Also, your fantasies are your fantasies and your erotic script is your erotic script. What turns you on about power dynamics is probably always going to turn you on about power dynamics. You have it in your head that you can't have those things. You can't have humiliation, degradation. You can't have dom-sub dynamics or bondage or whatever else it is that turns you on in the context of a loving, committed relationship, that you can't get those sorts of things from someone who makes you feel treasured and valued and important. And you can. I would encourage you to go follow Lena Dune, ask a sub on Instagram. She does a lot of education. She is a sub-identified woman in a DS relationship, a loving, committed DS relationship. She talks a lot about negotiation. She talks a lot about aftercare, and she talks and posts a lot, particularly on Fridays. She does these big Q&A sessions that I think are really great on Instagram about DS and relationships and finding the DS dynamic that turns you on with somebody the spit you want to drink with somebody that you want to be with, with somebody who loves you, who honors and cherishes you and treats you the way you would like to be treated, including treating you to the kind of sex that you enjoy, the kind of sex that turns you on, that gets you wet, that gets you off. So follow Lena Dune. Stop going out with this guy. You're not suddenly, you can't change your mind about wanting to drink his spit. You want to drink his spit or you don't want to drink his spit. And it sounds to me like you don't want to drink his spit. And if he's a nice guy and you like him, don't waste his time. Let that nice guy go find someone who wants him the way he wishes you did, but you don't. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Matthew Grant tweets, I used to think Nick Kroll was a huge but funny jerk because he plays them so well. His appearance on the Savage Lovecast showed me that he's smart and funny and empathetic and sweet and full of great advice. I completely agree with you, Matthew. Actors who play jerks or comedians who make fun of jerks by pretending to be jerks shouldn't be assumed to be jerks themselves. Same standard applies to people who play nice guys on TV or on the internet. A Chambers tweets, this Easter, I'm going to say allegedly instead of amen after the prayer at my girlfriend's all Mormon family dinner. Hashtag Sky Daddy. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I didn't see a follow-up tweet from you, A Chambers. I hope you lived to tell the tale. And finally, Dr. Arena Pismeni tweets, oh my God, at Fake Dan Savage mentioned the book Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships by Brian Earp and Julian Savulescu on Savage Lovecast, episode 753. Yes. Well, Dr. Arena, if you like that brief mention, you're going to love the full-blown interview I did with Brian Earp about love drugs on episode 699 of the Savage Lovecast. All of our past episodes with all of our greatest guests are available to Magnum subscribers. Go and subscribe at savagelovecast.com. And now your response calls. This is a response to the caller from the last episode that's had several unsuccessful first dates lately. My advice is twofold. Do not call them dates and do not meet in a place with romantic expectation. After matching on an app, the next step is an opportunity to meet in person. It should be a relaxed environment where you two can interact with each other and be yourselves. Go bowling. Do not go to a nice dinner. Go surfing or go dancing or whatever activity you two have in common. But do not go on a picnic with wine and chocolates. Is a coffee date much of a date? 
No, it's just a means to meet in real life and see if you have an in-person connection. If you do, then you can move on to quote-unquote dating, which in my mind comes later. There's matching, then meeting, then dating. These are three separate steps. Hello again. I just finished listening to your latest episode where you had a caller comment on choosing to be gay and saying, so you chose to be straight. And it occurs to me that I have to ask, why do we even defend choosing to be gay? Even if someone did choose to be gay, I don't think there should be anything wrong with that. I realize that people don't choose to be gay, but so what if they did? Hi, Dan. This is a comment about the sex success story on episode 753. Just a reminder to all the callers that you can achieve that mind-blowing orgasm and open-hearted communication afterwards without any substances. If you are curious, you can try Tantra. It's pretty awesome. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. It's time for another round of Hump's Greatest Hits, our third volume of some of our favorite kinky short films in the last 16 years of the Hump Film Festival. It starts on April 30th. A great new selection of kinky, funny, sexy, anything goes, porn shorts, many of them hilarious. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer, read about the films, and grab your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Kelsey Burke on Twitter at Kelsey Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Please go get vaccinated.